Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Todd Zawicki, Professor of Law at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. And we're going to be talking about Todd's work on uh, consumer credit regulation. Hey, Brian. Thanks be, Thanks for having me here. Nice uh, to talk with you. Of course. Thanks. It's, it's the, the pleasure is all mine. Um, and I really enjoyed the talk that you gave earlier today uh, packed an awful lot of ideas into a very short time frame. Of course, I've heard you speak many times before, but not on this particular subject. And one thing I was hoping you could do, because I don't think it gets enough attention, is to talk a little bit about the kind of the historiography or the intellectual history of uh, consumer uh, consumer credit scholarship and ideas about consumer credit, what's it for, and, and how it works. Because I think people often feel like this is sort of a new field that came out of nowhere, and I think you really did a great job of explaining how that isn't the case. Well, there's this idea or sort of a myth that people have. Uh, Lendo Calder, the economic historian, calls it the myth of lost financial virtue, uh, which is everybody believes that this is the the generation that's gone to hell, you know, where people are living beyond their means. But you can go back and basically look at every generation for the last 150 years where everybody thinks we've lost the sort of the frugality of prior generations. Um, and that helps to frame a context to understand the study of consumer uh, credit and consumer credit regulation as well, which is um, the, the modern era of consumer credit really starts when people moved into the American cities at the beginning, late 19th century, early 20th century. People left the farms, immigrants came in and uh, had to deal with sort of wage, uh, the wage economy, uh, periodic job loss, unexpected medical bills and that sort of thing. And it put a lot of stress on the traditional way in which people uh, uh, lived within households. We also started, started getting the early glimmers of the development of the consumer economy um, as people started buying things like pianos and radios and sporting goods and things like that, and then of course uh, cars. And so the consumer credit really, sort of middle class consumer credit goes back to the beginning of the 20th century. Certainly by the 1920s, we start to see a lot of use of consumer credit. And along with that then comes the first efforts by economists to try to understand how and why consumers use credit. Um, and in particular, back in the old days, what we originally saw was installment credit or what is called buying on time. Um, and sort of as the consumer credit economy has developed, economists have thought about it, and um, credit cards obviously are a big change. But um, there is a long, robust body of research studying how consumers uh, use credit, um, and um, and it's not just a, it's a, just a new idea. So it sounds like what you're saying is that something really dramatic happened in both the consumer credit market, but also in consumer credit scholarship sometime in the 1920s. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of what changed at that point in time and, and what people started looking at. Well, two things happened in the economy that then led to increased academic interest. Um, the first thing was what we saw in the uh, onset of the 20th century was this great migration to the cities as people left the farms and immigrants came in from abroad. And for the first time, we really had to deal with um, the, the problems involved in a wage labor society, cyclical unemployment, 
unexpected medical bills um, and things like that gave a, a need for people to be able to get access to credit. Uh, the second thing that happened was the dawn of the uh, of the consumer sort of consumerist society, um, and what we see is the invention of radios, uh, pianos. Um, things like that, uh, and then later cars, of course, that put a huge uh, uh, spurt to uh, interest in consumer credit. And these are all consumer durables, uh, which are kind of like almost like a business investment where people can purchase something and it generates a flow of services over time. Perhaps the best example was Singer Sewing Machine, uh, which became most famous for um, its, its credit program. And that was a good example, which is housewives could use the sewing machine basically to create clothing for their family, but also often took it in a piecemeal for textile companies and that sort of thing and would actually produce clothing that would then be sold in, in shops. And so what we saw was all of a sudden this, this logic of consumer credit to smooth income and expenses on one hand and to buy consumer durables on the other, such as radios and furniture and appliances, created a great demand for credit. That in then in turn led to the first academic studies, uh, and there was a uh, economist named Seligman at uh, Columbia who wrote a two-volume um, uh, study in the 1920s on installment selling, uh, which was this practice of buying on time where you'd make uh, monthly payments. Seligman sort of first studied this, and then as we went through the, the 40s and 50s and into the 60s, as the consumer uh, consumer economy grew, Consumer credit grew with it, uh, and the study of consumer credit uh, uh, grew with it as well. Unfortunately, beginning a lot about the 1970s or 80s, uh, the study of consumer credit fell out of favor in universities, um, and a lot of people didn't study it at that point, and they feel kind of went dormant, um, only to really get a big resurgence of interest after the financial crisis in 2008. Right. So I'm really interested in your work. Uh, on more recent events in consumer credit, but I, I've never really heard about this sort of shift in the 1920s. So I just want to follow up on that a little bit because it sounds like the introduction or expansion of installment contracts was really important in developing or changing the market or availability of consumer credit. And I'm kind of wondering um, why that happened and sort of what people did before that happened. I mean, did the availability of installment contracts come from demand or did something in the regulatory market or something in the, the broader kind of financial markets change that made it possible when it wasn't possible before? Well, a variety of things were going on uh, at, the, at the same time, right? First was um, just economic growth in the United States, right? And people getting more money and getting more money meant that they wanted more of the good things in life, uh, whether it was books and encyclopedias or pianos or, or radios, right? Um, and uh, people wanted that. Um, and there's really no need to, to save up for it if you can finance it, right? Uh, the example that I given when I talk about this is cars, right? And the, the what really spurred uh, uh, middle class access to automobiles was the creation of the General Motors Acceptance Corp in the 1920s where you could 
buy a car and finance it and drive the car. Uh, and as I say, Ford's response was you can buy a car and layaway, uh, which is send them a check every month for 10 years and eventually at the end they might give you a car, right? Um, meanwhile, ride the bus. Uh, well, if you understand why that doesn't make sense to buy a car on layaway when you could be using the car and financing it um, out of the increased productivity you have essentially from the uh, from the car, then you understand why that um, doesn't uh, uh, make any make any sense right and so um uh and so this starts to grow in the 20s as people become more prosperous as uh mass production increases so that a lot of these goods and services come into uh the means of middle class families um and installment selling rises up beside that on a very localized basis uh, department stores furniture stores clothing stores offering the opportunity for people to buy things on uh, on credit. This then has a huge effect on the economy, which then leads economists to start thinking about it, understanding this new phenomenon of being able to buy for things when you don't have the money. And another way of thinking about it is it's a way of actually saving, if you think of it that way, which is that what's the value of a washing machine? It's not having to schlep to the laundromat every week. I'm with a pocket full of quarters, right? If you have a car, it's not having to, you know, it's not having to pay bus fare uh, or, you know, not being limited in the places you can go uh, because a car gives you great, uh, great freedom um, to live in different places and work in different places and things like that. Um, and then, of course, the great boon to that then is the post-war migration to the suburbs um, beginning in the 1940s after World War II and the whole expansion to the suburbs was financed by credit. Uh, you know, uh, Levittown was conquered by credit, essentially, right? When you moved from an apartment in the city, you had a, a house with a mortgage, you had to get a car because you had to commute, so you had a car loan, you had to get furniture for the three-bedroom, uh, you know, split level, uh, you got all the appliances, all that was financed on credit, and it went hand-in-hand hand with the growing economic prosperity of the middle class in the post-war era. So you're talking about a period that in some ways sounds familiar, but also sounds really different in one really fundamental way. And, and that way for me is that you haven't used the word credit card mm -hmm. yet. And I'm wondering sort of what role the development of credit cards and that kind of consumer credit played in this story that you're telling. Um, is it similar to the way that previous forms of credit work? And, you know, I guess my question is, how do you, how do people use credit today differently from the way that they use credit in the 20s and also in the 50s and 60s? Well, that comes back to your, your, your key point here, Brian, which is that um, there's a lot of uh, historical myopia here, myopia, when we think about um, consumer credit, uh, which is, in many ways, things are more similar than different, even though people think that sort of the... Um, uh, you know, the whole world went down the drain when credit cards were invented in the 80s. In reality, credit cards are just a more efficient way of doing what we did previously. So if you look at the data, for example, in the, the 60s and 70s, um, consumers were using all this installment credit. Um, if they wanted a bedroom set, you know, they would open up a line of credit from the furniture store and pay it off in time. If they wanted a refrigerator, they'd um, open up a line of credit with the appliance company. If they needed $700 for a car repair, they'd go to the local personal finance company and borrow and pay it off in time. Um, credit cards came along and um, 
got rid of all those. Nowadays, you'd buy a refrigerator on your credit card or put your car repair on your credit card. Now, why did that happen? Partly it was because of developments in information technology, right, that allowed credit cards to reach economies of, uh, of scale and information that we didn't have previously. Part, uh, a large spur of it was the 1978 um, uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, which basically deregulated interest rates by saying that the um, interest rate would be set by the state of the bank, not by the state of the consumer. Uh, which then led uh, a lot of banks to gravitate towards Delaware and uh, uh, South Dakota, which had new, no usury ceilings. And the effect of that then was to deregulate interest rates, which was probably the most important part, along with state laws uh, deregulating interest rates. Because one of the reasons we had so much installment credit was that it was tied to retailers. Uh, the big department stores, for example, uh, appliance stores, that sort of thing, could offer you both credit and the goods, and they would tie them together. And what we saw in the past was, in states with strict interest rate ceilings, they simply raised the price of the goods that you that you would buy, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, one study found that in Arkansas that had strict interest rate ceilings, the same refrigerator cost 8% more than it did in Texas, right, right across the state line, because they were making up for their credit losses by raising the price of the goods. Deregulating interest rates allowed credit cards to be, become unhooked from the transactions for the goods, allowed consumers to shop for the lowest price on the goods, best quality, and separately shop for the, for the credit cards. And so what we see in the data then is credit cards become just a more efficient way of delivering credit for consumers. It's more efficient for merchants because merchants don't have to bear the risk and cost of running in-house credit operations. Um, not to mention the fact that merchants never really like to collect on debt because they risk alienating a uh, potentially um, uh, good customer. Um, and, uh, um, and, and overall, um, uh, it just was a better way of, uh, of conducting business than the old retail store um, installment loans that we saw in the past. So overall, there's no evidence that credit cards have increased indebtedness for consumers. It's just been a substitution from all these installment forms of credit to, uh, to to credit cards. So this is fascinating, and it's a really kind of counterintuitive or counter-narrative story about consumer credit and and how it works. Because usually I hear you know this is terrible and people <laughs> you know are taking out credit when they shouldn't and they're you know using credit unwisely and so on and so forth. Um, why why is that narrative so powerful and you know and and how do you respond to people who sort of find it compelling? Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, um, um, and and let me let me stress that is that it, that it's absolutely true that there are people who get into trouble with credit, who uh, overuse credit to, to their their detriment and end up in bankruptcy and that sort of thing. But I think the lesson I've learned from looking at the history is there have always been people who have overused credit and obviously uh, people have always used credit to live beyond their, uh, beyond their means. Um, but it seems like it's always actually been a minority of people who, uh, who do that. Now, why is it that we have these strong perceptions of, uh, of, of the world that seem to me to be out of step with the reality? I think there's two, two things. One is, as I have to talk about, is what we call the other guy effect. 
which is all of us, when we look at our own uh, finances, think, well, I'm obviously using credit responsibly. I'm living within my means. I don't buy things I can't afford. But it's the other guy. It's everybody else, right? Mm. And as I like to say, either we're all ourselves or we're all the other guy. <laughs> they can't. They can't both. Uh, can't both be true. So I think our perceptions of other people may be clouded uh, for whatever reason, psychologically, uh, to look different from our perceptions of ourselves. I think the second thing is is that uh, um, the, the deep-seated in our psychology um, is uh, reinforced by, uh, by academic ideas, I think, is kind of a fear of consumer credit, which is we all understand business credit is productive. That took us a long time in human history to understand the idea of risk and investment, that I could actually, because the natural tendency, you know, as we say in the Bible, seven years of famine, you know, seven years of feast followed by seven years of famine, right? And the historic perception was that consumer credit is nothing more than kind of eating your seed corn, uh, consuming more today and can't consume more later, right? Um, We eventually came to understand that for businesses, investment makes sense, that I can actually borrow today and pay interest and end up wealthier because I can increase my productivity if I buy a new backhoe or computer system or delivery van or whatever. It's much harder to see how that operates with with consumers, which is to understand that what a lot of consumers are buying are actually in the nature of a capital investment, uh, that a washing machine is actually a capital investment and not just consumption. It's not just buying a pizza uh, or a nice dinner, all right? That's harder for people to grasp. And so I think when, uh, uh, um, and so it actually requires kind of a recalibration of our our views to to think about how consumers might use credit productively. I'll just give one last example. Adam Smith himself was a great skeptic of consumer credit, supporter of business credit, skeptic of consumer credit for exactly this reason, which is great Adam Smith saw business credit as productive and consumer credit as simply re, you know, living high on the hog today and then not having as much uh, in the future. So it's uh, even the smartest people don't always appreciate that. Okay, so you're telling a really fascinating and counterintuitive story about how we might actually socially benefit from liberalizing access to consumer credit and kind of a adopting a kind of a more or less regulated or deregulatory approach to thinking about consumer credit, it sounds like to me, but which is fascinating, right? And I, I, you make a really compelling case for it. I'm wondering if the perspective that you've taken on the nature of consumer credit and how it interacts with the economy more broadly has caused you to think at all about how we might still want to regulate consumer credit in some ways? Because presumably there are some ways we could regulate that would make the market work even more efficiently than it currently does. Absolutely, and I, and I want to make clear, I think that there's uh, uh, plenty of room for sound regulation in this area, obviously, most obviously against fraud and deception, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, obviously, it's important uh, to have clear understanding and, not, uh, uh, and, and the like. But I think a more interesting question is, the larger questions of uh, consumer credit regulation. And the way I think about this is you can think about regulation from two different perspectives. I call it market reinforcing versus market replacing regulation. 
what we've traditionally followed is a system of market replacing regulation where you simply ban products such as payday loans or, uh, or, or set terms such as interest rates, right, or prohibit terms uh, in, in that sort of thing. Now, the problem with that is, is that you can get rid of the supply of a product, but you can't get rid of the demand. And so what we've seen recurrently in, uh, in American history is every time we try to uh, engage a market replacing regulation and take away choices from consumers, um, it ends up hurting consumers overall, right? And in particular, the biggest concern is the products we're most concerned about, payday loans, um, high cost, short term loans, are used by people who have the fewest choices. So we should be very careful about taking away choices from people who already have limited choices. Um, and unfortunately, what ends up often happening, or history's taught us, is loan sharks come around, the leg breakers. Um, so I've talked about uh, in 1973, for example, in New York, when they arrested Anthony Fat Tony Salerno, the head of the Genovese crime family, he was actually breaking people's legs, running a loan sharking operation that was um, on, a, on any given day had about $460 million outstanding in, in today's dollars. So people, when you take away their choices, they still need access to credit uh, to, to, to make ends meet. What I prefer is what I call market reinforcing regulation, which is treat, uh, treat borrowers like grown-ups, even poor people, um, respect their choices, understand what they're trying to accomplish, and then help people to try to accomplish that. So things like standardized disclosure laws, for example, I think makes sense. I think we get um, things like um, limits on uh, uh, you know, things that you could otherwise use to collect debts that uh, end up being very unfair to consumers uh, and undermine faith in the uh, uh, consumer credit process. But the idea here would be to try to allow competition to work in this market, just as competition works in other markets, and make it easier for consumers to find the products that they want at the best prices, rather than kind of being paternalistic and taking away their choices, saying, well, this choice you shouldn't be allowed to choose, which ends up just usually driving consumers to worse choices. Fascinating. So my understanding is that a lot of people in the kind of consumer credit scholarship world lean pretty heavily on <laughs> behavioral economics and essentially kind of propose or posit that, you know, people are relying on heuristics in ways that don't necessarily make them kind of rational borrowers or rational consumers in the kind of way that you're describing and, and introduce kind of inefficiencies into consumers' use of credit. I, I wonder how you respond to some of those critiques of the liberalization of consumer credit. Yeah, and, and I think the historical perspective we've been talking about, Brian, is very important to understand that, right, uh, which is they think that there was essentially no study, academic study of consumer credit before uh, behavioral economics came along about 10 or 15 years ago, and that, that's just not right, right? It goes back to the 20s. People, there were books written on uh, uh, economic psychology and using consumer, uh, using psychology to understand consumer decision making in the 70s, right? So this is not, uh, this is not new. The ideas have been around for, for a while. What is new about behavioral economics is the, the claim to its much more claim to be more scientifically rigorous, right? Uh, uh, drawing on the work of Kahneman and Tversky in, in particular, but then the direct application to policy to recommend interventions uh, by by the government 
uh, uh, predicated on the idea. So behavioral economics rests on the idea that uh, um, consumers have biases um, and that that leads them to make poor decisions. Uh, so a common one is said to be the over uh, optimism bias. So for example, they say consumers um, uh, believe that they're going to pay off their credit card uh, balance at the end of the month, but they're over optimistic. And so month after month after month, they keep thinking they're going to pay off their credit card balance and end up revolving it. Or consumers think they're going to pay off their payday loan in two weeks, uh, but they're over optimistic and they end up having to roll it over and it ends up costing them more than they, they, they expected. And so that provides a foundation for limiting terms, regulating terms directly, what I just called um, uh, uh, product, uh, um, uh, you know, um, mar market uh, replacing regulation, right? Regulating directly the terms of products uh, that can be offered. Um, I've written a number of articles now looking at the empirical evidence, and it just turns out not to be true. So, for example, payday, lend payday loan borrowers are, are not fools. Uh, payday loan borrowers, when you ask them, Ronald Mann has done research on this, most of them know they're not going to pay it back in two weeks. <laughs> uh, and those who, uh, who don't estimate, they know it's going to take them four weeks or six weeks. And those who make errors, it turns out, sometimes they pay it off early and sometimes they pay it off late. So what we say is they're unbiased estimates. Same with credit cards. People don't, month after month after month, think they're going to pay off their bill and then, uh, th then don't do it. So a lot of what it is is what I've called just-so stories, which is picking out some particular data point and then taking some of these ideas from behavioral economics and seeking to explain that data point without thinking about this more systematic or broad-scale framework that we're talking about here, which is what would rational use of consumer credit look like by consumers, and overall, are they doing a pretty good job of, uh, of, of doing that? I'm perfectly willing to believe that consumers have biases. Obviously, consumers make mistakes. We, we all do. But the real question is, are they systematic errors, and are we certain, are we confident that the interventions we would make that might limit choices will actually make consumers better off. And in most situations, I think the case just hasn't been made. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like, if, if I'm getting you right, your, your critique of a lot of this behavioral law and economics talk about consumer credit is primarily an empirical one in the sense that you know they're proposing a theoretical model which turns out not to track on what actually happens in the real world. I'm wondering if there are areas or or, or ways you think that applying some of, or, or rather, whether you think there are insights in that way of thinking about consumer credit that might have a payoff, or is it just something that is too hard to do? Well, I, I think that to some extent, there's just two different visions here that this is um, suggesting, right? The kind of the vision I start with, based on my reading this long history and looking at the data, is that Consumers are actually smarter than we actually than we give them credit for, which is yeah, people make mistakes, but they learn from their mistakes. And, and over time, people actually do pretty well. Um, most people live within their means. Most people use credit productively to make their lives better. Contrary view is basically the idea that consumers are are fools, uh, that they are sheep to be shorn by unscrupulous banks and lenders and that sort of thing, um, and so that they're constantly vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And so. To start, it kind of starts off with two different visions. Um, in that sense, it really does become an empirical um, uh, question. And so 
you know, I'm perfectly willing to believe that, you know, the 214 biases or whatever have been identified uh, uh, that people might have are valid, right? Almost all of them are completely contextual. Um, the, the, almost all of them are mutually uh, um, uh, opposite. Uh, you know, for almost every bias, there's some other bias. Uh, but the real problem is, and so, so I think it's possible that it might explain the world, but finding the right context, making sure that it operates in the right context and applying it coherently is a real challenge. So I'll give you a very simple example. A lot of people say that um, consumers systematically undersave for retirement. Um, and turns out that's not true um, based on what we know. Probably about 85% of um, Americans save at least as much as they need for retirement or more. Anybody who's gonna end up basically leaving an inheritance to their kids has saved more for retirement uh, than they need. Um, so most people save enough for retirement. But let's take it, let's talk about the 15% who don't, for example. Is that because of behavioral economics? Is it because people don't, uh, um, you know, are for whatever reason, present biased or something like that? Well, let's think of how that might work, right? So one of the examples I give is, well, you know, consumers don't save enough for retirement, right? Um, well, it turns out um, there's a couple things that are, are, are interesting because of biases, right? Turns out there are a couple of things interesting about that. One thing is consumers also are over-optimistic about the likelihood that they're gonna live to retirement age. Actually, tragically, about 20% of 25-year-old uh, men are not gonna live to, uh, to be 65 or 70, right? Are we gonna make those people's lives better off if, they, uh, if we force them to save for retirement? If those people are saving for retirement, they're oversaving, <laughs> right? And yeah. it's because they're over-optimistic about how long they're gonna live, right? Um, and it turns out, it's also even more interesting if you break it down from sort of crude generalizations about people, who is it who saved the least for retirement? It turns out it's also people who don't really save for retirement are also people who smoke, don't exercise, don't eat healthy, work in dangerous occupations, right? People who tend not to save are also people who tend, unfortunately, to have shorter mortality expectations <laughs> than other people. And people who save the most also turn out are people who live the longest, right? So taking a simple idea like over-optimism bias and applying it to all these different people and thinking somehow or another we can say something general about them and whether we should make them save more or not and make their lives better off, I think is really, really complicated. So it could be done. I don't think we know enough at this point, and I certainly don't think our regulatory tools are sufficient at this point to think that we could come up with rules that should displace the free decisions of individuals uh, uh, acting on their own. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like part of the problem here is it's, just, it's really hard to know when somebody's responding to an irrational bias as opposed to acting rationally under the circumstances based on information that they have more of than the potential regulator would. Yeah, that's right. And, and a lot of things that look irrational from the outside actually are rational to people. So let's just use the savings example one more time. Let's talk about this, say, 15% of people who don't save for retirement. You said one of the reasons is a lot of them might actually accurately believe they're not going to live to retirement. But when you ask those people, they don't say it's, oh, I, you know, I never got around to doing it. I wanted to. What they say is things like, I'm paying down my student loans. I'm paying off uh, uh, consumer debt. I just don't have enough money to save right now. I'm living paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, I'm saving for something else like a house, right? Now, 
if somebody's got a choice between paying down their student loans and putting some money on their 401k, it sure isn't, I mean, it sure isn't irrational to think that they might be better off paying down their student loans, right? And if you force them to save, they don't magically get more money. They just have much less money to pay their student loans at that point, right? Mm -hmm. So their student loans remain outstanding longer, right? So it might look like irrationality, not saving when you should. A lot of times people know better than the, uh, the, the professorial central planners who think they know how to make their lives better off. Right. So maybe a little humility and regulation would be a good idea. A little humility and regulation, especially with the use of these uh, behavioral economics tools, is probably still warranted at this point. Well, Todd, you know, it's been a, a real pleasure talking with you about consumer credit. And I've, I've learned a lot, both from your talk earlier today and from our our conversation. I was wondering if there's anything you'd like to leave my list, my listeners with, like any parting thoughts. Yeah, I would say the, the the main thing, and this is what you know, it was about 15 years ago that I started really working on this, and I believed, like most people believe, that consumers used credit irrationally and they overused and they used it to live beyond their means. And I just found that I just didn't find that in the data. Um, and so I think that the real lesson I take away from this is. Not only should regulators be uh, um, uh, have some humility, we as academics should have some humility. We should allow the data to tell us whether we're right or wrong, right? And we shouldn't just assume that everybody who doesn't have a JD or a PhD doesn't know how to manage their finances or doesn't know how to live their lives. Because when I started looking at the data and started reading the history of consumer finance, I found out that ordinary Americans are often a lot savvier um, than, than we give them credit for. And so having some humility about, uh, about our understanding of our fellow citizens um, might be something useful sometimes for, uh, for academics to keep in mind as well. Oh, on that note, <laughs> <laughs> on that note, that humbling note, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Brian.